you know, we really tried to more clearly articulate what the design principles are at Floyd. And the first one is nothing unnecessary. There's a good reason for it to exist. What problem is it trying to solve? So we really have to ask ourselves, does this need to exist in the world? Um, and it's it can help for decisions that are extremely detailed, like should we put wood on the exterior of our new sofa? The answer should be no if it's just ornamentation, and the answer should be yes if it serves a function. So it's very specific in that, but it can also help us as a company to say, is this strategic initiative adding to the core of what we do? That's Kyle Hoff, co-founder along with Alex O'Dell of the furniture startup Floyd. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens. When the world's spinning out of control, it can be impossible to know what to do and what to miss out on. That's called FOMO, which is short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term, and I'm the world's first FOMologist. And this is a show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers, people I call FOMO sapiens, how they live and work with conviction no matter what life throws at them. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back, FOMO sapiens. This week, we're going to be talking with a pair of founders who made all kinds of unorthodox decisions on the way to building their business, Floyd, which has now raised roughly $10 million, doubled sales every year, and now has at least one of its products in over 30,000 homes. And here are just a few of those unorthodox decisions. First, Alex and Kyle started the business right out of college, and they didn't work before, so they had minimal working experience. Second, they launched with just one single product, and it was a leg. It was a leg that could turn any flat service into a table, and then they brought it to Kickstarter where they raised more than $250,000. Now, based on that momentum, third, they expanded into a limited range of furniture products that were sold entirely through the internet rather than through physical stores. Fourth, they based their company out of Detroit, far from the deep-pocketed VC funds in Silicon Valley and New York City. Today, we get into how these two founders decided to, as Robert Frost would say, take the road less traveled, and why that has made all the difference. Then, stick around for the foam moment of the show where we're going to talk about sabbaticals. In the interview with the Floyd founders, Alex and Kyle share how taking a sabbatical provided an opportunity to step back from the pressures of day-to-day life to think more strategically. So I invited DJ Donna, an expert on sabbaticals, to tell us how we can all get the most out of taking a break from business as usual. And surprise, you don't necessarily need to go to Europe for six months to get the benefits of a sabbatical. And now, on to the interview. As I mentioned, Kyle and Alex started Floyd right out of college with a Kickstarter campaign and a pair of legs. And so I wanted to understand exactly how they got started and what was the origin story of Floyd and these famous legs. We actually started, you know, about a year or so after we both finished up school. Um, you know, over that period of being in school and after school, we both had lived in, a, you know, a number of cities, moved a lot, were, were kind of transient and, uh, you know, had bought our fair share of um, you know, mom beds and lac tables from a, a certain Swedish furniture company that, um, when we moved, ended up in the land, you know, landfills at the curb. Um, and, and yeah, so we, um, you know, we kind of set out early on to, to solve a problem around disposable furniture. And, you know, the first kind of product that came to mind when, you know, when we started kind of like, you know, crafting what this could be and, and looking for some, some answers was, um, you know, this table leg system that could attach to a flat surface. Um, you know, at the time I was living in Chicago, Alex and I hadn't really met yet. And, uh, 
kind of, uh, you know, didn't want to make that trip back out to Ikea again and uh, buy something that, you know, would end up, you know, going to the curb when, when I moved. And, um, and that was kind of the sort of impetus or what led to the very first uh, Floyd leg. Uh, out, you know, flash forward like six months, Alex and I both had moved to Detroit to help a friend start a, you know, entirely different business in the city, kind of started kicking around ideas around furniture, the disposability of furniture. I mean, it was started doing some research that 9 million tons of furniture were thrown away each year. And um, we knew there had to be a better solution. And, uh, and yeah, we had that first Floyd leg, you know, kind of opted into, you know, launching it on Kickstarter and uh, kind of got together around thinking about the problem through the lens of that um, one product. And so I, I, I love the problem you're trying to solve, which is disposable furniture, because I, I'm the king. I live in New York City. I have on several occasions actually set up an entire room I wanted to get rid of on a sidewalk, walked away for an hour and come back and it was, it was gone. So I, I don't even know how that happens. But yes, it's true that people buy cheap furniture when they're in the 20s and 30s and they end up moving a lot. Right? I think I moved 12 times in my 20s and you're constantly getting rid of furniture. And so you came up with this leg that you could attach to any service to make anything a table. You put it on Kickstarter, does well, and then you're like, okay, we're gonna make this a business. So Alex, when you were thinking about actually pursuing this as a business, I gotta think people said no. Like, no, you're in Detroit. No, you wanna sell online. No, you. this is a leg. <laughs> how, did, how did you think about actually going and doing this as a business. Yeah, I think when we came off the Kickstarter, it was a lot about, all right, how can we bootstrap this? How can we continue to grow? And so we were very focused on on continuing to sell this table leg product. But there came a point where Kyle and I really felt that the opportunity was there to build a wider furniture brand. And as you've highlighted, it's very difficult to go out to New York or San Francisco and say, hey, we have a table leg and we're trying to build a furniture brand that's going to change the world. Um, <laughs> there's there's a big leap of faith that you have to get through there. And I would say we probably had, um, in, in going out and trying to fundraise to, to fund this business, um, we probably had over 100 no's as we went along, um, which to me, I mean, looking back is is a bit understandable given where we were, but what our sort of vision and, and ambitions were. Um, but we did find partners that were aligned. And I think like overall, when you're building, like when you're building a company, you have to kind of have the right um, role models in mind. And for us, we were really thinking about IKEA and we were thinking about Ingvar Kamprod and founding IKEA and how that was such a long-term business and a long-term plan. And you know, for that company, they were founded in 1943 and it took them about 10 years before they made their first million dollars um, and another 20 years after that before they made their first billion dollars. And so it was a very, very long, long road for them. And I think that was like inspiring for us. And so early on, we might have had, um, you know, kind of been thinking about how to follow in the tracks of a technology company or things like that. But we sort of said, hey, we want to really follow more in the path of an IKEA and be around for a really long time and, and make an impact. Although we definitely had our critiques of the IKEA model from um, the disposability, and we didn't think their model was adapting for how people lived, but but still we could be inspired by the values that they held true to. But I got to think you're going to talk to these investors and VC investors. We love them, but they have a lot of opinions, and they're telling you things based on what they did 
in their last company that they invested in. And some of these, are gonna, they're going to be wrong, right? And so how do you, how do you know how to sort of filter out the bad advice, listen to the good advice and make sure that you don't get discouraged and that you're seeing the good things happening and that you know that those things are telling you that you should keep pushing forward. You know, while we were hearing no's from, uh, you know, a lot of potential investors, we were also like bootstrapping the business. We were hearing yes from a lot of customers who were, you know, really understanding this pain point. And had we not really had the confidence that this was, you know, a larger problem and that we were, you know, hitting a pain point with, with you know, four customers, I don't think we would have had that confidence. And I think that was something we really gained from the Kickstarter is really understanding what, you know, what this pain point was for customers that people really, you know, cared about these things, shared the values we had with, you know, thoughtful product, thoughtful design, um, buying something that lasts. And, um, and I think that is kind of what, you know, has always kind of held true as sort of like our North Star versus, um, you know, taking a commodity product or some, you know, a product that's okay and just going out there and, uh, you know, loading it up with, you know, venture money to, to, to market to people. It just didn't, you know, that to us doesn't feel very, you know, sustainable long-term. Yeah. And Kyle, it's, I'm just thinking about as you walk around to these meetings and all the no's that you got. And we forget that if you've ever raised money, one thing you learn pretty quick is that if you pay attention, you can learn a lot. Every time you get a no, and sometimes people say things that are completely useless, but sometimes they give you nuggets of information that make you better, that maybe even get you to change your mind. So as you embarked on this like graduate degree in fundraising and rejection and eventually raising money, were there things you learned that that had sort of forced you to, to make decisions that you might not have made otherwise? Yeah, I think there was the definitely the feedback loop just being, you know, called somewhat of a cottage business or the market wasn't there. And I think it did get us to really think about scale, um, how we, you know, in our, our model and how we're hitting, you know, like can't just, we're not just going to be a, a bed frame company or, or table leg company, but you know what it takes to not only convince an investor that you're a furniture brand, but a customer that you're a furniture brand. I, we learned a ton. And then I think there was also the things we learned from, um, you know, we learned about who we didn't want to partner with. Um, we didn't want to partner with the folks who were like, you know, I, you need to be in the Bay Area or in, you know, on, in, in New York or on the East Coast to, to build a business like this. Or, you know, we didn't want to, you know, be a partner with the folks who were like, uh, you know, you need more customization, more options. I want to see your bed frame in, a, <laughs> in more of a, a rustic vibe. It, you know, so it's, it's like, I think we learned that, you know, we learned that the partners that would, you know, were going to be the people we wanted to work with. And um, I think, you know, we did adapt, but also being sort of stubborn and focused on what we want to build and how we wanted to get there um, helped us sort of weed out some of the, um, you know, some of the partners who I, you know, I'm really happy right now being where we are that we didn't kind of, uh, you know, bring in to be part of the Floyd, you know, border and investor family. Tudo bem, meus queridos fomos sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. 
Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. And so you go out there in the market, you raise some money, you have the legs, the table legs, which we will, we'll never forget about those because that was the first product. <laughs> but then you expand, you go into other things, you're in the bed frame. But one of the things you did in these early years, which is pretty striking, is kept it simple, right? I like to think about the, the analogy I think about is Apple. Apple, when they came out with the iPhone, there weren't like a thousand types of iPhones. There was like the iPhone and that was it. And, and while Apple has expanded its range, it's still relatively simple vis-a-vis a lot of other companies. And so you chose simplicity. That's good for you, but it's also good for your customer because your customer doesn't become overwhelmed. So as you thought about your business model, what were the elements of, it, of simplicity that, why did it appeal to you to go that route? Yeah, I mean, there's, um, I think it's a, it's a number of, number of reasons is, Around the design itself, right? You can um, keep the keep the parts simple, the amount of pieces that you need to deliver, and so you can create a more simplified manufacturing process, um, which helps keep your costs low um, and ultimately make the product more affordable. And we just found that we could get better and better at at the manufacturing process by focusing on a more singular product than having a wide array of options. Um, and I think there's also the element that by standing by your product like year after year, you have a commitment to that and you want to make it actually better for the end customer. And so like with our bed frame, um, you know, it started as a birch bed frame um, without a headboard and we designed a headboard add-on and we designed underbed storage and that was feedback from our customers. We've recently rolled it out in other materials like um, American Walnut that's FSC certified, the highest sustainable certification you can, you can receive around, around wood material. Um, and so it's that continued investment into the product to say, we're going to stand behind this year, year after year um, is, is really important. Now, all that said, we just talked about the virtues of simplicity, but I was on your website and I noticed you did something that I thought was a little naughty. So I'm just going to call you out on it, which is that you launched a mattress. Mattresses big market, but super crowded. You get Casper and all the other online players. And, and so I, I just thought to myself, like, Ooh, are they straying from their core value of simplicity by getting into the like fractious, crazy mattress market? So tell me what, why you made that decision. And do you think that as you add more products that you risk, in fact, becoming complex in a way that creates more problems than it's worth? Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a tension that's there within our within our team and and within our decision making is like the the inherent contradiction of growing to encompass a full home of products while still remaining true to this simplicity. And when it came to the decision around a mattress, you know, at the end of the day, if you buy our bed frame, you're not going to sleep on wood slats, right? And so you're going to have to buy the mattress from somebody. 
Um, and so we wanted to make sure that that would be a quality, long-lasting mattress that would work alongside of it um, and solve like that sort of experience pain point around having to buy the bed frame from Floyd and, and go elsewhere. And ultimately, like how we got a decision around a product is we can still stand by this product 20, 30, 40 years from now. Um, and for this mattress, like we do feel like it's a quality mattress. Um, and, you know, it's it, we're not sort of reinventing the wheel per se, where we might be trying to do that with other products. But it's just like, how do we just solve the core need of what you're looking for in that product? Now, I did I did a little reading about Floyd as I was researching and I just moved apartments. So I've been living in the furniture world uh, a lot these days. And there's it's interesting because, you know, furniture it's great. looks nice, but not a lot of people are running around passionately proclaiming their love of furniture, except when it comes to Floyd, apparently, because I read, this is, I don't know where, where you have some great copy out there. There's a website called inside hook, which wrote quote, the Floyd platform bed is handsome, easy to build and perfect for Instagram. Another place uh, wrote uh, that it tried one of Instagram's favorite pieces of furniture. So there's a lot of social media happening. People are going gaga. And, I, and I'm curious, how do you make that happen? Is this like a, is this organic? Are you seeding this stuff? And, and what is the role of social media in the growth of the business? Yeah, we're trying to reach an audience that, you know, is not like the design snob, is not the, the person who is, you know, knows all their history of furniture and design. We're trying to make the brand accessible for people. And so I, I think for a lot of times, this is sort of the first time people have bought a really quality furniture piece um, where they've come to appreciate that that in the way that maybe when they first appreciated getting a nice shirt or nice clothes or um, appreciating a nice bike or something of that sort, like kind of that entry level brand for people. Um, and so it's continuing to figure out ways to make Floyd accessible. And one, one thing that we've done is um, an initiative called Stay Floyd. And we took our favorite Airbnbs around the country in really great spots and in Joshua Tree outside the Catskills and, and great locations where we furnished them with Floyd and people could actually go and stay there or see the product in real life. Um, so sort of moving away from the showroom idea and also launching um, a, a blog last year called Lived In that has had a really great reception where we're just simply telling stories of people's homes and just going and seeing how they live with the product. and not trying to do anything, anything more than that. And I think people really resonate of a great place for inspiration in that way. And so is this, uh, just to get deep into the mechanics here. So is this about organic placements or do you actually work with influencers? Is that part of your strategy to like, you know, ship out a bunch of furniture to folks and then get them to, to take pictures of it and say how much they love it? Like, how does that work? Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, as, as I think other brands, you know, we, we have engaged that strategy, but I think in the, in the larger sense, it's about the organic piece of just how can we be one of the strongest people around telling stories around the home. Um, and we've done that in through the State Floyd initiative, through our blog, Lived In, um, and yeah, just continuing to drive that home. Now, you two, I read, just took a one-month sabbatical, which is very much in the wheelhouse of FOMO sapiens. In fact, on my on my LinkedIn newsletter, I had a guest, a uh, series of guest blogs by DJ Dodona, who was uh, an expert on taking sabbaticals. And I took a year-long sabbatical, so I am all about sabbaticals. So I wanted to know, I mean, it's, so it makes sense, but you're still running a fast-growing startup. 
Why did you do it? And what did you achieve with that decision? Yeah, it was like closer to the end of the summer, you know, Kyle and I were just reflecting on like uh, the past year and, you know, how that's put a lot of strain on, on our team and our company of, of navigating through a pandemic and with the, um, with sort of the, the conflict as well, that it's also been a time where we've experienced a lot of, of growth and been really fortunate in that way. And we were both feeling like a bit that our own personal energy was very focused in the weeds. And we were getting into a lot of those details. And um, there's an island like in the Detroit River called Belle Isle. And Khan and I biked out there. And we were sitting out there hanging out by the water. And it had just come up in conversation. Like, what would it mean to just take off a week? Um, to just really, for us to focus and work on the things that we think are long-term. And I think it was Kyle that said, well, why not do the month? Um, and I was like, yeah, that's, <laughs> that sounds like a really great idea. And so we talked to our leadership team about it. Um, and ultimately, it was, it was a great experience because we were able to put together you know, our vision for 2021, our, next, our five-year plan, um, think more about the design principles that um, encapsulate Floyd. And all the while, like our, saw our own team sort of strengthen in that time. And so we just sort of came came back like that we felt like that we could be better leaders coming back and helping the company grow to this next scale because it it's it's definitely out of a, a startup range that today you know Floyd is in the homes of fifty thousand customers and that just takes um, smarter organization and it takes um, you know stronger stronger leadership as well and Khan and I really wanted to make sure that we were in a best position to help help guide the company through that. From my perspective, it seems like you've made a lot of deliberate decisions and stepping back and taking sabbaticals, one of them shows how you take decision-making seriously and give yourself the space to do so, even in a crazy startup environment. So I just want to hear from each of you, what is your guiding principle when making difficult decisions? Let's start with Kyle. You know, the way I think, and I think Alex and I are, you know, a great, great balance in this, but um, my methodology is always, you know, step back, kind of take everything, you know, take in sort of the, you know, kind of big picture and then, yeah, move forward with a decision. I think we, you know, we're not, um, you know, we, there's not a lot of situations where we have to make a decision within 20 minutes. Um, we're trying to build a long-term company that will be around for many decades, if not a century. And furniture has just naturally has sort of like a long time horizon on how long it takes to bring product to market how long products are part of your life. People, you know, think about buying furniture for six months, a year. It takes a long time. And I think we don't necessarily need to react in the moment ever. It is about making sure we're kind of surveying everything and then moving forward. So, um, you know, my, it, my, my position is often, you know, let's collect the information and make a, a decision. It's not like we collect it for five months, but it's like, okay, let's make sure we're taking everything into account really quick and then, and then go. So, I mean, like coming back from, from that time in September, you know, we really tried to more clearly articulate what the design principles are at Floyd. And the first one is nothing unnecessary. There's a good reason for it to exist. Um, and that was sort of looking at the original Floyd Lake product of like, you know, the, what problem is it trying to solve? So we really have to ask ourselves, does this need to exist in the world? Um, and it's it can help for decisions that are extremely detailed, like should we put wood on the exterior of our new sofa 
The answer should be no if it's just ornamentation. And the answer should be yes if it serves a function. So it's very specific in that. But it can also help us as a company to say, is this strategic initiative adding to the core of what we do? Or is it sort of an appendage? Is it sort of random? And that helps us um, guide that decision to say, no, like we should probably pass on that and focus on what is necessary. All right. Core values. That makes a lot of sense. The website is floydhome.com. I'm here with founders of Floyd, Alex Odell and Kyle Hoff. Thanks a lot for being here, guys. Thanks so much for having us. Appreciate it. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to NetSuite.com slash FOMO. That's NetSuite.com slash FOMO. NetSuite.com slash FOMO. And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show. And today I want to talk about a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, sabbaticals. Now, after my career on Wall Street blew up, I actually took a sabbatical. I took about six months off. I spent time in Argentina. I went to France and Spain. I watched every game of the World Cup in 2010. And I spent a lot of time thinking about what I wanted to do with my future. And it was an incredible time that I really look back to. And I'm thankful that I took that time to focus on taking a break, but also getting out of the day-to-day to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Now, more recently, I discovered the work of DJ Dodonna. DJ is an expert on taking sabbaticals. He studied sabbaticals, he's taken sabbaticals, and he's actually codified what makes a sabbatical successful and what you can get out of the process. And so I asked him to come on the show today to tell us what he learned. But to start, I had to ask him the very obvious question, what makes him an expert in sabbaticals? I took one. And then I spent the next year uh, partnered with a researcher from the University of Notre Dame studying dozens of people who've taken sabbaticals, ranging from taking two months off to 12 months off from a dozen countries around the world, um, people of all kind of shapes and stripes to figure out what happens while they're on sabbatical, what makes it so meaningful um, and why it's important that, that folks should be able to have this opportunity. Okay. And what did you learn? It's one of those things where the reason why I've dedicated a couple of years of my life to doing this it's one of those rare things where every person who does it says, this is a transformational, important experience in my life. Um, so it changes you, and it changes you more towards what the research calls your true self. So who do you want to be? Who are you at this time? How are you evolving? And it does that by giving you a chance to reflect, uh, giving you some space and time to spend time with loved ones and family and people you care about. And actually to exercise choice to do the things that you want to do in life. Yeah, choice is super important. And to make good choices, you need planning. So what kind of planning do you recommend somebody embark on if they're going to do this? I think that, first of all, two-thirds of people have a negative event that catalyzes their sabbatical. So it's, it's a sudden event that they really don't get to plan for. It's usually 
something bad like a health crisis or something. And so if you have the opportunity to plan, um, that's great. I think you should try to make sure that you understand how much time you can take off without being stressed about money and things like that. And, um, you know, you, you kind of put a couple of things you definitely want to do, um, but make some space for things to evolve over time. Because the person who's planning the sabbatical is not going to be the same person that you are in the middle of it and, you know, towards the end of it. And what about somebody who can't take off six months, right? They just have a short period of time. Can you make the most of a short sabbatical? And how do you do that? It's a question we get often. And I think, you know, the cheeky answer is, you know, um, how sh- how short of a vacation to Paris can you take and get the most out of it, right? Um, longer is better. And part of the thing that makes this unique in our kind of harried life is that it is a long time and a long space with which you can actually do something important. Um, but what I would say is in order to maximize in a short time, you know, try to get that separation. So can you get geographic separation from your routine? Um, can you cut off email, you know, contact and communication for a period of time? Um, and then really, can you do something, uh, the content of the sabbatical that's so different from what you normally do that it feels like a kind of different life? And then how about structure? Is there some sort of structure that you should impose on your time in order to make sure that you're not just, I don't know, watching television the whole time? You know, the first stage of the sabbatical when you're leaving your routine life to do something unique and important to you, it really helps to kind of like get a clean break, right? So can you do something where you're getting out of your mind and into your body, right? I don't know if it's yoga lessons or dance classes or ceramics, something that feels very different from, you know, the knowledge kind of work that most folks are doing. Um, And, you know, I think it's also important during this first stage to know that this is going to be tough. Even if you're doing something fun, we have so much of our identity locked up in what we do for a living and, you know, how our life is. And you're going to be doing something very different from most of the folks around you. Finally, DJ, is there a favorite story you have about a sabbatical that you think kind of shows how powerful they can be? It comes to mind, some of the best stories we have are folks that have kids. So, I mean, obviously people with responsibilities like that are also faced with a big hurdle to be able to take time off. But I remember a story of uh, an entrepreneur who took their four kids in an RV for six weeks across the Western United States. And he said, you know, this is the, the happiest I've consistently seen my wife in our entire relationship. And keep in mind, we're all in a box together. You know, there's no quiet time. There's no babysitters. Um, and it really just allowed them to kind of be with their kids and their family in a way that wasn't just responding to, you know, needs and demands and errands to run, but was really getting to know them as humans and people. Um, I love that story. Check out DJ's work at the sabbaticalproject.org. Thanks a lot for being here, DJ. Thank you. FOMO. Big news. We now have a brand new website. So head over to FOMOSapiens.com where you can listen to past episodes, learn more about the show, and find out how to advertise. Also, head over to Spotify where you can find and follow playlists of the best of the show. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you, so don't be shy. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMOSapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO. FOMO.